Hey everyone, welcome back to the arena. I'm MD, joined here by Kobe, and once again, another special guest that we can't wait to get into. Uh, but before that, love and appreciation to the followership. What's up, guys? Uh, like MD said, we got another cool guest here. You guys may recognize him. I did. That's how uh, this is James Williams, how James and I met. We both go to the same gym, and I, I was looking, I'm like, I, I swear I recognize that guy. Like, because I watch a lot of NBA, and I was like, I, I, I think I reckon, like, that's a ref. And so I went up to James. I was like, do you ref, like, are you an NBA ref? And he's, yeah. And we got to talking. And um, so James is an NBA ref. He's been a ref for 13 years, going into his 14th season. And um, so in, in talking, James and I grabbed lunch. And in talking with James, he's been very uh, open about his mental health and his experience with the NBA. And I think it's going to be a really awesome conversation and one that you you all will benefit you know greatly from. I know I have. So without further ado, James, why don't you just provide a background on yourself? Who is James Williams and kind of how you got to where you are today? Uh, I appreciate it. Um, so as he said, my point is my 14th season in the NBA. Um, grew up in Indiana and went to school at Purdue and actually just needed a job when I was there as a freshman. I had no money. I was I was quickly going through money. Uh, so I went, I need a job to pay for food, stuff. And I saw a call out for referees for intramurals. I was like, well, that can't be too hard. And it was like $6 an hour, which at that time, I was like, well, that's good money to referee. So it can't be hard and you make money, so why not? Um, so that's literally how I started. I had no refereeing experience. I knew nothing about it. Um, my very first game at Purdue, when we when I started, we had a brawl, and I thought that was going to be the end of my career because I was like, this is a lot harder than I thought, you know, because it was it was really hard. They're very competitive in intramurals and Indiana, such a big basketball state. Um, but I realized I was like, well, it was kind of fun. I enjoyed it, so I kind of stuck with it. Um, initially, I was going to go to law school after undergrad, so I got accepted to a few places, and I was on my way. And the more I thought about it, it's like, you know. I want to try basketball, and I had someone that I met by pure chance, pure luck, kind of like you, uh, in the gym. He, but he, his name's Chuck Jones. He lives in Atlanta, and um, we worked a game together at the end of my junior year. And he gave me some information. He's like, you know, I think you have what it takes. You might want to consider this. Um, my whole thing was, I got one more year of undergrad, and then more law school. Basketball does not factor into this equation anywhere. And he said, well think about it, here's my information, and I kept his info, and about a year later when I was in my last semester, I just called him up, I said, well, tell me more about it, what does it mean, how does it work? Um, and what prompted you to do that? Well, what's going on in that year? Yeah. Well, the year was just like, it was just a lazy year, because I already finished all my credits to graduate, so I was taking wine testing, I was taking <laughs> golf, intro to golf, I took all these easy classes, because the first three years, I just freaking went at it and was taking extra credits and, and the credits I came in with. So my senior year was like, just let's just have fun. Um, so I didn't have a lot to do. But the more I thought about it, I was like, do I really want to do law school? Another three years, then you got to work your way up the ladder. It's, you know, it's pretty, pretty, pretty hard. Um, and I enjoyed refereeing. So the more I thought about refereeing, the more I enjoyed it. I'm like, well, if this guy says I can maybe go far with it, let me reach out to him and find out what that entails. Um, and he gave me some information, told me about it. I had to go to a camp. I'm like, what's a camp? Like, I'd never been to a camp for, for this. And um, so long story short, I ended up doing that, all the things he, he told me to do. 
So instead of going to law school, I moved to Atlanta where I had to go to referee because that's where the, the teaching was, if you will, the best teaching. Um, so I moved down there with, I think I had less than $200 to my name. I had no job. Uh, this is October of 01, so 9-11 had just happened. The world was like really in flux. Nobody knew what was going on. It was just a really weird, crazy time um, because of what happened on 9-11. And so I had no job. I knew no one and I had no money. And that's how I started when I moved to Atlanta. And um, I moved down there in 01 and I got hired in the NBA in 2010. So it took nine years from there. Uh, it all worked out for me, thankfully. Um, and yeah, so. What does that nine years look like? Is that is that roughing college, high school? Yeah, it's, a, it's college. It's a lot of small college basketball all over. I never refereed high school. Um, so I don't have any experience there. But NAIA, JUCO, I mean, we would drive six hours one way to go do a JUCO game and then drive six hours back, get home at three in the morning, and then you got your regular job that you're getting up at seven or whatever to go. That's what we did. Um, that was just part of the journey. Um, and again, that it was, it was just this process. It's like baseball. You work your way up through the minors. And no one knows anything about the minors. You know, they, they just know about the major leagues and the big-time college. Um, that's all people know about, but there are so many leagues and conferences that are small that all over the country. So being in Atlanta, our boss had all of these leagues that covered everywhere from basically Alabama over to North Carolina, down to Florida, up to Kentucky. And in those nine years, I probably drove easily 400, 500,000 miles. So do you ever, do you ever start to, is there ever a period in that where you start to question yourself is like nine years of going, you're, you're, you're grinding, like, should I have gone to law school? Should I have done the thing that I originally went to school for and to make more money and have more financial security? Does those thoughts ever come up during that? Oh, it came up the very first year I moved down there. So again, I had no money, no job. And I only knew a few people from the basketball officiating. Um, and so one of the guys, he had a house. Well, he's like, I'm having a house built in Atlanta. You guys can come stay with me. I'm like, great. I don't have to pay rent because I don't have a job. Um, but his house wasn't built yet. So I first moved down and ended up in Hoover, Alabama, which is a small sub, which is a small suburb of um, Birmingham. And this was October. And it was actually late September, October. November comes around, I'm only doing a couple games, I'm not working near as much as I thought I was going to work, so I had this grandiose idea in my head, and it didn't really turn out to be that when I got down there. Um, but the guy, his name's Travis, I had let him borrow my car, and he actually wrecked it. Um, and in this storm, it was raining, we had gone to do some games up in Nashville, and so my car is being fixed now. Now we're in November, and it's, we're approaching Thanksgiving, and everybody goes, they're all going home, there was like four of us in this house, so everybody leaves for Thanksgiving. I don't have my car because it's being repaired and I have no money. And I'm in this two bedroom crappy apartment in Hoover, Alabama for Thanksgiving. And I'm what, 21, 22. And it's Thanksgiving and I'm like, I have, have, I'm not, there's no one. There's, this is no, there's no cell phones now. So I'm like, okay, this is what I signed up for. And I had no money. I had like $2 to my name. I still remember vividly what I did. I went down, there's a gas station down the street. I got a soda and two Little Debbie snacks. That was my Thanksgiving dinner by myself in this shitty two-bedroom apartment. And I knew then, I was like, oh, you 
you, you're an idiot. You made a complete wrong decision. You know, you should be in law school right now, you know, learning the law, whatever, just anywhere but where you are. And I just remember this is, this is really, this really sucks, but I couldn't go back home because I knew if I went back home, my parents would have told me, you should have listened to us. Like, this is, this was not a good decision. So I, instead of hearing the shoulda, coulda, wouldas, or the I told you so speech, I'm like, I'll just suck it up. But that was, I was really hard. I was like, this, you know, everybody's home with their families for Thanksgiving, and here I am with two little Debbie snacks and a Pepsi or whatever, and that was my Thanksgiving dinner, and I'm not working very much. I'm still looking for jobs. I'm still trying to get acclimated to this new place. So that was really tough. And again, that was like two months after being down there, a month. So early on, I was like, this is not the right decision. But I think people just think you just go like this, and like, uh, it's not the way it works. Yeah. There are a lot of ups and downs, peaks and valleys, and you have to, I think in officiating, I can speak to officiating, because we're all going through it together at the same time, the people who are, you're working with, you're coming up with, if we call it, in the business, coming up with someone. So we all have similar stories, and it's like when one's down, somebody else can pick you up. When that person's down, somebody can pick them up. And it's really like a team effort, just because it's not like all just rainbows and smiles, it's... You know, there's a lot that goes into it. You're away from your family a lot. And then the pressure of the games, even at that level, you want to do well. And when you make mistakes, it's hard um, to overcome that. You, you, but you have to, you know, that's that's part of the gig. Um, so what helps us in officiating is that you got people with you who are going through it. It's kind of like what I imagine, um, you know, if you're going through SEAL training, you know, you're all in that hell together and you're all lifting each other up. Now, SEALs are some of the best, most well-trained, best, you know, they're fit, but they are mentally, I'm sure they're going through stuff, and it's good when you've got somebody that you can lean on who who can empathize with you because they've been through it themselves, and that that picks you up during the dark times, in my opinion. Um, so yeah, it, it wasn't just, you know, oh, you know, just was smooth sailing, there were no issues. It, there were many times where I was like, like, yeah, I mean, this is gotta work. just just like the athletes that you're all officiating for, right? Like they're also trying to maybe get to the NBA, and so it sounds like that that was your end goal or the destination in mind. And I was curious to understand, like, what's the competitive landscape like for the officiating room? Because you just talked about like how it's a support system, but at the end of the mm -hmm. day, you're all in some ways competing for a finite, limited amount of spots to get to where you're ultimately trying to go. And so, right. was there also a healthy pressure of competitive? Yes. Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, yes to that. There, it's very competitive. Um, but it is a healthy competition. It's really, I mean, listen, in, in any competition um, or any competitive environment, whether you're talking about law and you're trying to become a partner or you're talking about consulting, I can't imagine the big three in consulting, you know, that's just got to be cutthroat because everybody's trying to get to those C-suites. Everybody's trying to become a partner. Um, so. People who are typically um, type A overachievers, you know, you put all of them in a, in a room and you say, okay, you got, there's 300 of you and there's three spots. I mean, it's going to be, I'm sure, very competitive uh, and there'll probably be some, some backstabbing and all types of things going on. Um, we're not immune to that officiating. There's, you know, but for, I would say 80%, I use the 80-20 rule a lot. 80% of it is healthy competition mm -hmm. where um, because you have to work together as a team, you know, it's just, it's, you can't, 
and you, and when you learn officiating, you can see when when the crew is working together as a team versus when they're not. When they are, you can tell they're competing against each other out there. It shows. It just shows in how they work for the, from the the trained eye. The, the average fan would have no idea. They they can't see that. Uh, but people who know officiating can see when they are working as a unit and when they are working as individuals. Uh, and usually when they're working as individuals, things don't go as well. So absolutely a healthy competition, which is, I think, a good thing. Um, it, you know, as long as it doesn't get nasty, it doesn't become, um, you know, I'm trying to backstab MD to get a step over him. That's, you know, even if you get to where you're trying to go, you've, in my opinion, you've missed out on everything. And you've lost, you've lost what's most important. You know, if you, you can get and your integrity. Exactly, it's just your character. You may get there wherever there is, but if the manner in which you got there, you had you you left you know a ton of people in your wake. Um, I'm a true believer in karma that all of that comes back at some point in time, and I, I'm not not one that would want to deal with you know that, that karma as it, whenever it shows itself. So let's fast forward a little bit. Just talk through the feeling of getting the call or whomever gives you the news that, hey, you're, you're trying out for the NBA or you're going to be an NBA ref. Just talk through that feeling and then the feeling of stepping on the court, like just what's running through your mind during those times. Yeah, so... Was it like, I made it? like, Or was it... Yeah, like you have a Justin Fields <laughs> jersey on, you know, the NFL puts on this big production every year for the new young man coming into the league, right? Number one overall pick, I don't know. What was Justin? Eleven. Eleven. was? He was Justin was eleven. So there's this big, you know, this you know a lot of uh, pomp and circumstances. You know, the commissioner comes out. He pauses for effect, and you know, with the eleventh pick, the Chicago Bears select, and they're you know, and it's, so it's a big thing, right, for the fans. Doesn't work like that for referees, <laughs> you know, as if, you, if in case you didn't know, it doesn't work like that. Um, so, like I said, I'm going into my 14th year. We got a call. It was August 10th, 2010. That's when we got our call. And it literally lasts like a minute. So, the um, it's the president of League Ops and the, the, the supervisor officials. They're on, they're on a call. So, when you kind of know when you're getting close. It's almost like if you're a baseball player, you're in AAA. You know you're, you're just one step away from making the big team. Uh, it's the same with referees for basketball you're in the G League or it was D League back then if you're working the playoffs if you work the finals that's like you know that's like you're almost there and you get invited to what we call vet camp uh, so shout out to uh, the people that are coming to vet camp next week so next week we'll be in New York for a week um, so eight young women and men get to come and sit in this room for the whole week with the NBA referees on staff which means they're just one step closer um, so a huge, huge thing for them. It was a huge thing for, for us. And so we got a call. You kind of know it's coming, or you kind of have a sense that it's coming. And anytime you see a 212 number, you just know you need to pick up the phone. <laughs> so it was 212 flash, and you know, my hands were shaking, and I picked it up. And at that time, it was uh, Ron Johnson and um, Bernie Fryer uh, from the NBA. Just, just calling to let you know that... Um, you know, we've decided to bring you on staff full time. Well, you'll be getting more information here shortly. You know, with, with where to be, when, things like that. Congratulations. Do you have any questions? Oh, no. 
Uh, it's like you don't. Yeah. You know, all right. We'll see you in a couple weeks. Click. There. That's your call. It's like it's a minute. So is this before you've had any NBA action, or are there like preseason games or G League games? Yeah. Like it's you've had some preseason NBA games. Okay. So that's what vet camp is. So if you get to go to vet camp, like I just mentioned, those eight folks who are going to be in New York next week with us. So that has changed a little bit. Those when we were coming up, you could you only worked preseason if you weren't a full time referee. So you got to vet camp. Hey, you've been doing well, MD. Come to vet camp, and you're going to get two or three NBA preseason games. And that's another way for them to take another look at you. A little bit higher competition than the G League, although not true NBA because the preseason is it's preseason, right? These games don't count, and um, you know. Zach Levine's not playing 38 minutes. Zach Levine's probably not playing, you know. But it's still another level in a, in a different environment. You're instead of working at wherever the Bulls G League team plays, now you're going to the United Center. And while there may not be 20,000 people in there, maybe there's 12. And it's just the, the other feel, and to see how you react under the bright lights. Um, and so, yeah, you get a few preseason games under your belt. Our union and the league has since negotiated where that has now changed. So now if you go to vet camp, you do preseason and some regular season games. There's a number that they can do up to a certain amount, a certain amount of time in the schedule, which is all part of the contract. But before, we just could only do preseason. So now the people coming to vet camp, they can get some real games experience, um, which is even more of a uh, more telling to see how well you perform. Because now you're working a game in November and Zach Levine is playing. So you get that call. Is it a feeling of like, I made it like just pure joy? Or is it like a feeling of fear of like, oh shit, like I got to do this now. Like I'm I'm under the bright lights. No, it's it's definitely pure joy, man. You're you're calling your families. Uh, I remember one guy telling, he got his call when he was with his his family. They were somewhere in the car. And um, wherever they were going, and he said after he got off, you know, he had to pull over because he was shaking. And um, he asked his wife in the in the passenger seat. He said, "Did I did I tell him thank you? I can't remember if I told him thank you." <laughs> She's like, "Yeah, you told him like twelve times." Because <laughs> his mind was just, you know, it was it's definitely pure yeah. joy. But so you're you're excited. You've worked so long to get there. Now that you're there, it's like wow, I made it, so to speak. Um, the fear doesn't come in, I don't believe, and I can only, I can't speak for everybody, I don't know, but I imagine it's when you you pull up to the arena. Like, my first game as an NBA referee was Denver at New Orleans. I'll never forget. And uh, this is when Denver had, like, Camelo and... Uh, AI? Ke- uh, no, Kenyon Martin. 2010, right? Yeah. Kenyon Martin was on that team. J.R. Smith. Or was that was not in school in New Orleans, or...? Uh, New Orleans had Chris Paul. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I remember, so I'm obviously the rookie on the crew, and I remember when we were pulling into the arena, like literally pulling into the arena, I just saw like Rolls Royces, Ferraris, Lamborghinis, <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, I'm here. That's, that was my moment. I'm like, and when you walk out, man, it's like, oh, yeah, it's like, okay, now, now you're here. Yeah, so let's yeah. let's get into the, the skull of a new referee in the NBA, right? Because you just got done competing and being competitive to get to where you had to go. 
And then you always hear this thing about, like, the referee's not supposed to make it about them, you know. And, and probably mm-hmm. if your name's not getting called out as a referee under bright lights, that's, that's normally a good yeah. thing. Yeah, it is. At the same time, like, is there a sense of ego of, like, I'm an NBA ref, I need to be able to stand my ground, I need to be able to be assertive to some extent, I'm a rookie, I can't let a Chris Paul bully me, right? <laughs> and so how are you balancing keeping just a focus on what you need to do to be, you know, performing at the top level that you need to be performing at? All the while keeping your ego in check, but then balancing and checking on everybody else's ego. Yeah, it's listen. It's it's a very um, tough thing to juggle. You're you. First of all, we are not the show. You know that's you know we don't people don't pay their hard-earned money to come watch me referee. Um, they they come and watch the talent, the players who are some of the best athletes in the world, whether it's baseball, football, hockey, whatever to perform in, in this highly competitive environment. So that is the show. That's what drives everything in every league. Um, notice he doesn't have a Commissioner Goodell shirt <laughs> on, right? He's got Justin Fields. That's the talent. They're the ones who drive. They're the product. Um, and in the NBA, it's such a small court. It's a small, very, um, uh, very high-pressure-packed, environment it's just 94 feet by 50 it is very small and so there's a lot of interaction that more so than what you would have on the ice or on a baseball field that's you know from home plate to center field is 400 feet mm-hmm. or 300 yard field or 100 yard field 300 feet field for football you might not have inner interactions in football if you're the back judge with players because you know you're the back judge the NBA, basketball, it's completely different. You have constant interactions. And so you're as a, as a referee, you're trying to manage the game and people. And that's a huge, and listen, there's no easy answer to that. It just, it literally just comes from experience. I'm going into my 14th year, and I think now in 14 years, I've gotten to a good balance with how to do it. And a lot of that comes from you know, you've been around a long time, they start to know you, they, they've seen you more and more and more, so there's some comfort there between players and coaches with you out there, and that helps with managing uh, these really big personalities out there, while trying not to make it about you, right? So that's the balance that you're trying to, to um, that you're trying to go for as a referee in the NBA, and it's, it's not easy. But yeah, uh, ego is, you know, I, I had a conversation last year with Doc. So what people don't know is like a lot of time we have a, we have a lot of conversation, right? So just a couple of days ago was the coaches meeting here in Chicago. Uh, so we were at the meeting. You know, it's a it's a really just laid back environment talking about stuff. And um, I was talking to uh, to Chauncey Billups. You know, I'm like, hey, because he was going to the Colorado game yesterday. I'm like, oh, they got the Cornhuskers. You know, so it's that kind of environment where. We're really just shooting the crap as men who like sports, basically. Men and women who like sports. And I was talking to um, uh, Wes Unsell Jr., who's the coach of uh, the Wizards. And he was talking about, you know, we've got to figure out a way to give you guys more access. Because people don't know about you guys and what you do. And, um, you know, they think it's all, like, contentious. I'm like, yeah, people think every time I'm talking to you, like, we're screaming and yelling at each other. He's like, yeah, they do think that because that's the way it maybe comes across. They just think coaches and refs have this and players. It's really not that. It might be that 15% of the time. The other 85% is, how's the family? You know, are, are, are you going anywhere on All-Star break? 
I need a break. Yeah, we're going to Turks and Caicos. You know, you know, that's the stuff like we're talking about out there. Um, but last year I was talking to Doc, and it was right. You know, it's a lot of conversation, like I mentioned. And I'm in front of him. We call that in the trail, the 28 foot mark. And um, I've, that means I've called a foul, and somebody's shooting free throw. So as a referee, I'm in the 28 foot mark. And um, I'm having this dialogue. They were playing. Philly was playing Detroit. <clears throat> And Kevin Nash was asking me a question about why he was why I called the foul, and I explained to him why he why I called the foul, what he did wrong. And as soon as I told him that, he goes, "Okay, got it." And then he you know he walks away. And Doc, who's like standing right where you are, listening to this whole interaction, says, "Yeah, that's really good. That's the way it should be. The players can ask you, tell them, and everybody keeps keeps it moving." I said, "Yeah, I'm working on it, trying to get better." I said, "Do you know they told me I'm arrogant?" They being they, I'm not going to mention who they are. I said, so I'm working on my arrogance out here, Doc. He said, James, we're all arrogant. That's the only way you get to the NBA. As a matter of fact, you can't get here if you're not arrogant. And I thought about that for a moment. And I was like, that does make sense. You, you, there, you, there, but there has to be a healthy arrogance to say, no, I'm good enough to get there or I'm there. Um, you can't have the mentality of, oh, I don't know if I'm, if I'm qualified enough. Oh, well, yeah, I don't well, know well. if I have, that, that's not, you're not going to do well. You're, you're just not. But it also can't be, I know everything and don't question my authority. That's the opposite end of the spectrum, right? So it's, again, finding the balance of, you know, Kevin, this is why I called the foul. Or it could be, Kevin, you know what? I think you're absolutely right. I did miss that call. Based on how I'm replaying in my mind, I, I, you might be right there. And I know it doesn't help. I can't take the foul back. But I believe I missed it, and I apologize for that. I can't do anything about it, but you're right. I'm wrong. And they appreciate that as well. So it's, it's that balance, right? You're probably balancing your own self-doubt just in, in life, right? It's just knowing that as an NBA official, you're going to miss a call. Oh, you yeah. know, the failure is inevitable, right? Yeah. And, and I think to be able to accept that and then... Also go out on the court if if Carmelo says you missed a call like well of course he's right he's Carmelo Anthony and I'm I'm a new official right so it's like how do you balance you know the inevitable nature of the failure that you're going to have with also not becoming consumed with self doubt and then letting somebody else who's been in the league much longer you know compound that pressure it sounds like you you kind of work that out through conversation yeah. and over time well you do I mean listen as a young referee you have a lot going I mean the game moves so fast. And when you're a young referee, I say those first five years, you're like, it's, it's literally 10 eggs in a blender. And you, you push the button and it's like, that's what's going on out there. And you're trying to slow this really fast paced game down to the point where you can see plays and make good decisions. It, it just takes time. Um, but you're, you also, what happens is the veterans will help you along with um, you know, we do a lot of teaching. It's just like, um, all right, let's talk about uh, the Packers today. Love is the quarterback today, right? He is now the starting quarterback for the Green Bay Packers, right? Aaron Rodgers helped him when, you know, when he was holding the clipboard, I'm sure, in the tape room, in the film sessions, and just, you know, these are the things you education. For. Absolutely. Yeah. To help, and, and the reason why you do that is to help slow the game down for them, right? Because... Even once Purdue, even the Big Ten, the level of play in the Big Ten SEC is here. The level of play in the NFL is here. 
There's a reason why only so many people can make the jump. It's, 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 it's immense. And so as we try to help and people help me, it's, it's not like I'm reinventing the wheel here, but you try to help them in the tape session to help them, to help them. It's like the referees have progressions like the quarterbacks. People, fans are always looking at the ball. That's not the way, referees don't, that's not how we referee. Mm -hmm. That's not how you referee, like you're not on the ball Whoever's dribbling, you're just what? No. I might be on ball 20% of the time. The other 80% of the time, I am not watching the ball. And for the average fan, they're like, what? How? What? Yeah, because we all have areas we're watching, and based on where the ball is, determines where I should be looking. And so we're doing all of this behind the scenes to help them so that when they are out there on the floor, it slows down a smidgen, and then it slows down a little bit more. And so maybe instead of 10 eggs in a blender, now it feels like it's nine. So it means it's just slowing down just a little bit. But you have to learn to have a very short memory at, at this level, whether it's baseball, football, whatever sport you referee. You can't dwell on, oh, I may have missed that because this player is really getting on me about this play. And now I'm still thinking about this play three minutes later. And meanwhile, you've had 12 other plays. That's, and then you're not happening. present. Yeah, yeah right. You're, you're so consumed with what was what happened three minutes ago that you haven't let that go and you know thought about the fact, okay, that was six minutes to go in the second quarter. So what that means is we've got 30 more minutes in an NBA game. We have a lot more basketball. Let's just move on from that. We can, we'll talk about that later. We can watch film. We can do all these things, but that's over. Nothing can change that. Let's get on to the next play. And <clears throat> that is something we try to you know help our young colleagues and teammates out with because you don't want to be wrong. They don't know you, so they're going to come at you all the time about stuff that they think you got wrong, even if you're right, just because you're a rookie. It's, it's part of the process. Um, and I, just, I even know now, like, there's times where <laughs> I'll be out there, and, you know, you got a young person on the crew, and you can see them going through it. And it's just like, if it's, if it's not really crazy, I'm sitting over there wherever my spot is, and I'm like, Oh, I remember those days. <laughs> like, yeah, I remember that. <laughs> what about the noise and the pressure that comes outside of the literal arena? And I'm talking about the fan base, the media, the crowd, right? When I make a mistake at work, the worst that happens is internally the, the business understands that and knows about it, right? Right. If an athlete makes a mistake at their job, they're going to hear about it on ESPN, the crowd, yeah. Twitter, etc. Yeah. If a ref makes a mistake at their job, you're also going to hear about it on sure. Twitter and ESPN, and you're going to be on newspapers potentially, all yeah. for the wrong reasons, all for the reasons you don't want to be in the headline. Sure. Have you had an experience like that, and or do you know people in, in, in your team of officiating that have had experiences like that? And what's that like to have to work through that and show up uh, the next day with the it's, fear? It's brutal, man. It is brutal. It's you know. So we're in the world now of social media. It's twenty four seven. You know everything is 24 7 and it just seems like we're in an environment where it's cool to be nasty to each other I hate to say it that way but that's what it seems like to me it's like like I could never understand I would never if I don't know you I, I'm not going to criticize you public I don't even know you but that's just me but as far as what we signed up for it's what we signed up for mm -hmm. right so it's part of it but yeah I remember my third year I was really struggling um, I had a, like four or five different games where I had made the wrong call at the end of games. <clears throat> and I just could not get out of my own way. 
and I was really going through it. Like I, I'm not on. I don't I'm to think that would have been 14. So I don't. There's. I don't know if Twitter was around. I don't think it was, but um, early days. Early days. Yeah. Okay. Um, but I remember just internally really struggling with the fact that I was making these really crucial mistakes at the end of games. And I remember vividly I had the, um, so the last time, the last one where I screwed up was, uh, it was an MLK game, MLK game in Memphis. It was the Pacers at um, Memphis. So this is when Memphis had um, uh, Zeebo, uh, Gasol, Mike Conley. And so them versus Roy Herbert, uh, I think George Paul Hill, George. maybe Paul. Was he there yet? I don't think Paul Danny Granger. George Danny Hill. Granger, maybe. Yeah, those guys. Uh, but definitely Roy Herbert was their big, you know. And so it's uh, Frank Vogel coaching against Lionel Hollins for uh, Memphis. And so at the end of the game, I'm in the slot and I have this call on Mike Conley to reach in a play that I can't see. And I completely get it wrong. He gets the ball and goes out of bounds. So anyway, we put Indiana on the line to shoot two. They went by like one or two, whatever, game over. And I remember going back to the locker room in Memphis, and um, I just sat there for like 15 minutes. I didn't move. I was, I was just distraught. Uh, it was really hard. Uh, my colleagues knew I needed some space, so they didn't, they didn't really come in and bother me. They just kind of knew I was, you know, going through whatever I needed to go through. And at that time, so my third year in the league, I had a, at that time, the NBA gave us these bag tags, which I thought were really cool. It had your name, your number, all these things on it. Uh, NBA, that you, because obviously we're traveling all over. I had it on my bag. <clears throat> I remember I went to my bag. I took that name tag off and I threw it in the garbage. Because it's like, you don't, you don't deserve to be an NBA referee. You're, you're not, you're not doing well out here. You're, you're really screwing up. And, um, so yeah, so, you know you, the people that I talked about earlier when you're coming up together, those are the ones literally who reached out. Those are the ones who kind of lift you up because they know what you're going through. They know what you're going through. They know it stinks. And they know at some point in all of our careers, we're going to be there. It's inevitable. We're human beings, we're gonna make mistakes. Um, so those are the ones you can know. Those are your ride or die, as they say. They, they're the ones that are, you know, supporting you because they know what it's like and so that helps but it's really you know so that was about 10 years ago it was a decade ago today i can't imagine um like what because of what we have now with just the social media 24 7 newscasts the talk shows in the morning first take get up 24 <laughs> bombarded uh How awful uh <laughs> i um uh, so yeah, that I remember going through that, and so now I know when when people are going through it, I reach out. You know, I, I just reach out because I know what it's like. Um, that miss that we had last year, there was a colleague we he had we had he had some games where, you know, we had misses at the end of games. This is the one with LeBron had a uh, that had a, too. A yeah, that was in Boston. <laughs> and, and, um, people have no idea what those officials went through. Um, and it was a lot, and I mean, it was a lot, like, just, I mean, we're not talking about nasty comments, we're talking about law enforcement getting involved with what, what they endured. Um, it's, it's just absolutely incredible where we are today as a country. And, but yeah, I reached out to those people when they go through stuff, because I know what that is like. 
Um, and it's, it's, you don't wish it on your worst enemy. And you try to, you really try to encourage and lift each other up because it's, it's just, um, you know, the fans and all those people on the Twitter, they're not going to have any mercy. And, and I assume that you know right away when you've quote unquote messed up, right? And mm-hmm. at the same time, you can't, you still have to perform and you still have to show yeah. a level of composure. I don't, I've yeah. never seen a ref or an officiator show that they've messed up on their face. So you're forced to, in some ways, suppress or repress those emotions for the time being. Do you, have you then found ways to heal that outside? And have, have you come up with self care? Have you sought any, methods of how to properly kind of go through some of those emotions that you might feel when you when you mess up and you're hearing about it well for me first of all i'm not on it social media so that makes it a little easier i don't i just not not a little much easier yeah 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 so easy i'm not going to put myself into that environment because for me the environment doesn't work for me it's like mental health is a big big thing um and just just whether you're in an environment where it's like we are kind of out there where people know who we are and we have high profile jobs where if you're just just a plumber you know and you got watching your twitter feed and just seeing the stuff that i imagine goes on through that what people are saying and you know tearing each other down so i don't do any of that like that to me is um it's like purposely walking into the den <laughs> the lion's den <laughs> i'm not gonna just walk into the lion's den um, I'm older and smarter than that. So for me, it's a lot. It's um, meditation. I, I meditate every day. Uh, I actually fell out of that, but I got back into it this summer. We had uh, this was a few years ago. The league did um, something in our camp where uh, they brought a gentleman in to teach us some things about meditating. And then if we were interested, we could go back to wherever we lived. And at that time, I lived in Atlanta, and they would set you up with a coach um, to teach you how to meditate. That was like a week process. So I fell off of that for a while, but I've got back to it. I can only speak for myself. It helps. It really helps with just clarity, clarity of mind sure. and kind of letting all the negative thoughts go or, or, or you know, or you're thinking about, oh, I got to do this, I got to do that, I got to do that. You know, it's kind of just letting all of that go for, for 20 minutes where you're just, it's like peace. You're just at peace for 20 minutes. Um, and it does it does a number for me. It really does help with my energy, my focus, uh, my clarity. So I've, I've gotten back into that. And I was telling Matt a couple uh, this year. I think be the first year, if I'm not mistaken. But um, the NBA has partnered with a couple of psychologists um, that are like basically like um, another resource for us to be able to reach out to sports psychologists just like players have and things like, because it is a high pressure job. And um, it's, it's good to have that resource available to you if you're going through something. We, <clears throat> we had that back in the bubble as well in 2020. And I remember PG, um, after we left the bubble, uh, Paul George spoke out about his mental health. And um, I remember vividly people like making fun of that. Mm-hmm. And that's when I said, and I, that was just another sign to me of just like, this is why people don't talk about it. Because if they're gonna, you know, make fun of that guy, surely they'll make fun of anybody, right? Um, but he was speaking his truth, and uh, that bubble was awful. Like uh, mentally, oh my God, that was it was really tough. And I was only there through the second round, so the guys who worked the third round in the finals were there another four weeks or another month. 
um, and that would have included Miami Heat and uh, the Lakers because they went to the finals that year. Um, brutal. I mean, it was mentally. I was like, I just couldn't wait to get out of there because it was. It it, it just it wasn't. Uh, you know, you're 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 stuck in this. It's like if you were in this area right here every day, you could this you could not leave it. You couldn't leave it. We'll bring you some food, or you can walk around. We'll give you a path to walk around. But that's it. That's the gist of what you're allowed to do. Um, you probably wouldn't sign up for that. <laughs> Most people wouldn't. Um, and yeah, so I can speak for myself personally. I struggled there after that first two weeks of this. Like, oh wow, this is this is this is going to be hard. Like, you start to sense this is not as going to be as easy as we thought. Um, and yeah, you know, there was times where it's just like you're just down. You're you're sad, you're, you're just because it's like you're so confined. Yeah, you're yeah, confined. Have, have you seen like a shift in how the NBA, just generally speaking, views mental health? Like when you started 14 years ago relative to today, like I know there's been some athletes, DeMar DeRozan, Kevin Love, oh, yeah. that have started to speak up about their mental health, Andre Drummond last year, and have started to speak up about their mental health. Have you, have you noticed any sort of shift? Uh, from 14 um, years ago and then also that follow on with that like just what have you personally learned about yourself I know we talked a little about this at lunch but like what have you learned about yourself through working in the NBA through like managing so many different personalities like you're roughing a game but also you said like you're managing people yeah so the first part of that is I, I, I do believe there's been more more light shed on mental health like it's a real thing and mental health is something that people can't see so that's part of the reason why we don't think of it as an issue um, but you know, 2023, I, I would say it's more of an issue today than it's ever been. After you know, a year and a half of COVID and people being isolated, kids not going to school, not being able to socialize with their friends, it's it's a real problem. But in America, especially if you're talking about men who are some some of the best athletes in the world, we are socialized from like four that you can't show weakness. Like men, we can't show emotion. We, there's so many things as men that we aren't quote unquote allowed to do because if you are, then you're a wuss or you're this or you're that. You're you're less less than a, of a man, and so especially most, in the athlete arena. Oh yeah, you know it's it's so that all of that pressure ends up you you basically just suppress it and you suffer from within. You suffer in silence, and that's really no way to live. Um, we have to become much more compassionate. Like, I don't care who you are. I don't care how perfect on Instagram your life looks. You're, there are, are gonna be times where you're going through something. And you need to be able to speak with someone, whether it's a trained professional, or just a, a family member, or a really close friend, where you can open up to them without feeling judged, without feeling as though, you know, oh, I'm not as, I'm not as big as strong as this, this persona that, you know, I, I, I put out there to the world. No one is. Literally no one. The Pope goes through something. The President goes through something. Whoever the biggest star is in sports goes through something because they're human beings. And those people probably more than anyone else because they have all these expectations and, and they're so known to the world that if they show some sign of, no, I'm struggling, I'm going through something, 
then that is counter to this persona that they have orchestrated, right? And their PR team's orchestrated. Right. So, yeah, it's, you know, I think we're, I think the league understands that and it's trying to do more. Uh, I'm sure the Players Association does stuff for, for their uh, for their members, just like our union does. Um, it's the same in other sports, but it's going to take time to get people to because essentially what you're doing is you're allowing yourself to be vulnerable. And that is a hard thing. Most people cannot be vulnerable, especially men. We, we, it's just we have this wall put up. And behind the wall, we're struggling. But we have to put on this face constantly. So shout out to those people that you mentioned, Damar, Kevin, uh, Andre. I, it, you know, I, it's hard. It, it, you, and you're trying to put on this face for so long that at some point you you know you just you just you can't do it anymore. And then the oh. second part of the question, just like what have you learned about yourself, you know, through managing all the multiple personalities uh, within your in your 14 years or well, going into 14. I definitely can say you know I've learned from my th third year where I had all those struggles at the end of games. You know, I mean I think you've <laughs> developed empathy there. Oh right, well, you said you're calling. Absolutely. On now I you know I'll I reach out to my colleagues when they're going through because I know how it is. But I also don't put the same amount of uh, pressure on myself this, to be perfect <clears throat> because I remember those dark days. I really do, and I refuse to go back to them. Um, I, I <clears throat> meaning I have my priorities straight. Listen, we work hard. We try to do the best we can to be, you know, really good with our play call and decision making. We're not going to get them all. Um, and so now when I make mistakes, it's like, okay, let me watch the film. Let me learn from this. What can I learn? But I refuse to go into the depths of darkness over a basketball game. I just won't allow it anymore. That's growth over, you know, a decade. Um, and a lot of experience, it's, you know, while what we do is important, and it really is, it is on the priority list, you know, it should be your family, your God, your religion, or whatever, your family, your loved ones, then what you do as a maybe, maybe third or fourth, what you do for a living, whether you're an attorney, an entrepreneur, whatever, an engineer, that shouldn't be number one. A lot of times people, I think people think, well, because I'm in the NBA or because I'm in the NFL, this should be the number one thing on my priority list. And then if it's not, then, this, then people on the Twitterverse are saying, oh, well, he or she's not committed. You know, <laughs> they're not committed to, are you committed to doing your job 24-7, 365? No. Oh, that's such a good question. Yeah. <laughs> no. No one is. It was like Anthony Edwards like, when he was coming out. The, the reason that they were skeptical about the number one pick was he doesn't love basketball enough. Oh yeah, yeah. See, and that's that to me is troubling. It's troubling that people make decisions based off of that. You know, there needs to be a healthy balance. If your life is, I am an electrician, and all I do twenty four seven three sixty five is think about being an electrician. There's a problem there. There is way more to life than just the, being an electrician helps pay your pay for your bills and provide for your family. So again, we you know when you are on, if you will, when you're doing your job, you're doing, you're trying to do it at a high level. But once the job is over, it can't be okay. Let me just focus on what I did today. What did I do right? What did I do wrong? It's like no, you got to go be with your family. You got to be with your friends. You have to live. You have to sometimes put that aside and focus on something else just for your own mental health. 
you need a break from it. And in the sports world, we think athletes, referees, whatever, should be completely all in, or they don't love the game. It is complete BS. It is absolute complete BS. You need to be able to have something outside of the game to sustain you because you can't play it forever. You can't referee it forever. You need to have something outside of that that sustains you and keeps you lifted up. Well, you, because you can't ultimately be totally absorbed such that you end up not just neglecting relationships like your family and your religion in relationship with a God, but also you neglecting yourself, yeah. you know? And if you start to neglect yourself and you put 100% of your marbles into your profession, well, you're not going to perform as well. That's going to amount right. to something. And I think a good example of the opposite would be in Aaron Rodgers, if you, you know, are following. It's, he takes a lot of focus into his spiritual and mental health. And oh, then yeah. right now it seems like his profession is so light to him. Obviously he's very experienced, but... His ability to lead, I, I'm sure, has transcended, right. you know, yeah. his leadership abilities in the past, etc. That's a good point. I mean, you could be really, if you're really, just because you're so committed and so um, dedicated to your craft of, uh, as an athlete in whatever sport or referee, you might be great there, but everything else in your life is in shambles. And that catches up to you over time. Yeah, you know, again, you got to have some balance, man. Well, then you have no one to celebrate the quote-unquote victory. Yeah, exactly, right? exactly. You know, because you've neglected, to MD's point, you've neglected all these relationships for so long that they don't even exist. And so when you have those moments that, you know, of wins or whatever that you want to celebrate with folks, so when you're done with, with your teammates or whatever, when you go home, you have no one. Because your whole life has been, I got to make the Hall of Fame. Me, me, whatever. me. Yeah, whatever. You know, it's... There's a certain, there is a thing of healthy balance. Um, I, I refuse to accept the notion that if you're not 100% committed to basketball 24-7, then you're not committed to the sport. Pe people who think along those lines, are so they're, they're wrong. That's, that's so unhealthy in so many ways, and I'm not even a trained psychologist. I don't, you don't even need to be a trained psychologist to know that. Yeah, it's like the person in corporate that's you know totally hustling right grinding yeah. and, and over time you, you can't sprint a marathon but anyway i want to pivot back to toughness and how we're socialized a certain way as men and especially when you get to that level in the nba and i want to ask you just your definition of toughness as it relates to an nba athlete because you know toughness to the average fan on the screen in, in today's society the way we're socialized is oh the the guy who commits the flagrant foul and stands over somebody right that's maybe a perception of toughness or the one who's always you know talking smack throughout the game and maybe that retaliation's a a, a show of toughness um but you know we're here trying to redefine what toughness and strength really looks like especially for men who are also in an arena where having that competitive edge of intimidation might be important so it's like if it's not to retaliate because you're, you're showing weakness in that regard or physically or verbally, what to you defines a tough, mentally strong, strong player in the NBA? Uh, that's a really good question. Um, I, I honestly think, you know, someone who's mentally tough is actually someone who is able to admit and verbalize when they're going through something. I think that's when you really are in, t in tune with who you are. Um, now that you don't, that maybe, that maybe doesn't that mean you go out, you know, and publicly tweet that or say that, but maybe you say it to, you know, your coach. You might say, "Hey, I'm really struggling right now. 
I need some time away, whatever the case may be. That to me is toughness. That to me is really strong. Um, you know, because most of us can't, we can't, most of us can't admit when we're wrong and we can't admit when we're going through something. And that's why so many of us suffer in silence. It's, for me, it's not, you know, all those other tactics you mentioned, you know, you know, knocking someone down, taunting, standing over someone, you know, that's part of gamemanship. Part of it is that, um, and part of it is, you know, maybe bully, being a bully, that to me doesn't show strength. Normally, bullies are some of the most weakest among us. Yeah, most insecure. Suffering most insecure. The most. Yeah, and so they use that. They, that's a wall for them to try to show strength and show that you know that they're bigger and badder than. It's it's usually like a front for what's going on on the inside. Um, but the ones who can say, you know, I'm struggling right now. I need some help. You you got 30 minutes where we can talk. Just think about that for from a man's standpoint. Like we we can't do that. Like most of us, we cannot do that. And as coaches, we have to create space. Well, yes. I say we. Are. <laughs> I'm not the head coach, but as a coach in the NBA, Absolutely. you have to create that that's space. Part of, that's part of creating a culture where right. people feel comfortable enough to, to to come in in your office or whatever, call you up and say that. Right. The way you normally do that is leading by example. In, in good point. Right. Yeah. And, and so. Um, but I, I want to ask one question because we're kind of wrapping up on time here. Um, what do you wish, because I, I, I'm curious, like, what do you wish that the average fan knew about the NBA that most don't? Or what is something you wish you, people knew that they don't about the NBA? Oh, yeah, how much time do we have? I feel like I'm at confession. Yeah, yeah. That's not my fair share. Well, okay, so I remember hearing about... Um, <laughs> My buddy told me, he's like, oh, so have you heard this about the script? I'm like, what, what script? Because, <laughs> again, I'm not on social media, right? So my buddies, you know, some of them are refs, a lot of them are not, but they get a kick out because they, they like, well, I know I didn't be a referee, I'm going to reach out. And so I had a buddy from Atlanta reached out, and he sent me this. So I read it, and I was like, I couldn't believe what I read. <laughs> I was like, wow, man. I, I said, if people believe this, you know. For our I, listeners, what are you referring to? Well, so apparently people believe that there's a script, like like a movie, that things are supposed to happen, like it's already preordained. I guess for like now, you know, we have... Like the WWE. Yeah, like the <laughs> WWE, right? So right now in Oct early October 2023, maybe we're getting a script from the commissioner that says... In June of 2024, this team will be the champion, and this is how it's going to happen. The, I couldn't believe that people actually believed that. Like, I, I found that really hard to believe, just because, not even as an NBA referee, I'm like, why would, what about this makes you think that this is actually true? But I, you know, part of it is the NBA, or not just the NBA, but whether it's high school or whatever, basketball is such a subjective game, as far as, is this a foul, is this not a foul? It is so subjective because there's a lot of gray in, in, in contact. Or is that enough for a foul? Is it not enough? And so conspiracy theories out there think there is, in the NBA, they all think that it's the big market teams who they want because they want ratings for more money. And I, I don't know what you, what you can say to those people. I, I really don't. Um, that's the most far-fetched thing I've ever heard, but 
There is no script. <laughs> you heard it here, guys. <laughs> the script doesn't exist. Um, it's not fake. It's not, um, you know, we're getting calls to say, we want this team to win. This is what you have to do out there on the floor. I, there's no way I would dedicate at this time now or 20 years of my life to something that was fake. There's just no way. And all of the miles driven and all of the in the dark that, times exactly. yeah, that you've gone through, yeah. No freaking way would I do that for something that's fake. Like, are you kidding me? Like, so I don't, I don't, that is to me is like, I don't know how you get people to see that. But it's, it's the ultimate you know, compliment it, to how great the storylines are. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's just people want Perhaps. to be able to, I think people want to have an answer to everything. And so it's like, well, there's no way that a small market team could win this game or make the playoffs or win the finals. That just wouldn't exist. Like people want to be able to be able to explain or have some sort of rationality to why everything happens. And yeah. so you have people that are like, well, this just must be scripted because there's no way that the NBA, like this could actually happen. I have, so it was, I think it was last season. I think it was, I think it was last season or maybe two playoffs ago. So one of those, at this point in my life, everything runs together. But we had game six, Memphis at <clears throat> Golden State. It was game six. Uh, Memphis was down two games to three. Golden State's up three games to two, and they end up closing out that game. Um, so they win the series. And I remember I had to catch um, a flight. That would have been this year, I think. Was it this year? I can't yeah, remember. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I can't remember. But I had to catch a flight because I had been assigned as an alternate for game seven in Boston. So... I'm catching the red eye from Golden's from San Francisco to go to Boston, <clears throat> and yeah, people have no idea. That's yeah, mental health is travel. Yeah, <laughs> people have no idea. Six and a half hour flight yeah. <laughs> to, to go and you know be a part of a game seven 48 hours later on the other coast of the U.S. Three, um, yeah, three different time zones. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I'm leaving the arena, and um, I've got a police escort to get me because if you're if you know after any of these games it's the traffic is in, you know, people are, you know, the traffic is crazy. Well, it's really bad in San Francisco because you got the bay right there, and it is a mess trying to leave uh, the arena there in San Fran. Um, so the cops are trying to get me to this Uber to get me to the police escort to go to SFO. So I'm walking with, with cop, two cops, and we're walking, we go out the doors, and finally we come, we come outside, we got like four blocks there to get to the car. And one of the fans is, I hear fans like, hey, that's Gucci. <laughs> and so one of this, this guy, maybe mid-20s, mid-20s would be my guess. He's like, hey, can I get a picture? And I'm like, yeah, sure, no problem. I'm like, kind of thinking, like, I got to get out of here, got to go. But, but as he's walking over, he goes, because I, I was born in Memphis. I didn't, I've never lived in Memphis, but I was born there. That's where my, my parents are from Arkansas. And so as he's walking over, he goes, yeah, man. We didn't think we had any chance tonight because you're from Memphis and we just knew it was going to go seven. And I said, well, why did you think that? Because you're from Memphis. I was like, okay, <laughs> so let's take the picture. But that's how people think. Yeah. Like, yeah, they they, they, there's there's they, got to be an explanation. There's got to be an explanation for everything. And uh, I kind of got a kick out of that. I'm like, wow, first of all, he actually knew that I was born in Memphis. That was kind of scary. I was like, wow, okay, <laughs> okay yeah. Um, but the fact that he thought... No, the NBA puts put me on the game because they wanted to go seven. 
you know, and... You can be honest here, by the way. <laughs> so, what happens when it disproves their theory, right? It doesn't go seven. It's like any conspiracy Yeah, theory, it's like right? a cons- you don't hear about conspiracy theory. Yeah. No, no, it's just, it has a, all it has to have is a little bit of truth. So, if I could tell people anything, there's no script. Um, these are some of the best athletes in the world. They're not out there um, doing something that they've been told to do so that the league can make more money. I mean, just on its surface, it's ridiculous. Um, and the referees are doing the best they can. These referees are the best in the world. I know it's hard for people to believe that, but they are. That's the healthy arrogance because people that know officiating, can, we know the difference between what we do in the NBA level and what goes on at any other level in the world, any other level. It's not even close. And so... People are, these women and men are out there doing the best they can. They're human. They're going to make mistakes. We make mistakes. It's part of it. I know every night when I take the floor, I'm going to miss plays. I just hope I don't screw it up at a really, really important time. <laughs> right? That, that's what I try to avoid. That's what we're all trying to avoid because some mistakes are much more impactful than others. And so you're trying to minimize those really impactful mistakes. And, you know, Again, because we're human, you're not going to be able to do that 100 times out of 100. It's part of the game, uh, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's on the up and up. There's no conspiracy theories. There's no script. Everybody on that floor, from the coaches to the players to the refs, are out there doing the best they can um, to make sure there's a sense of fairness and that the best team wins on whatever given night, you know, whatever given night we're talking about. So yeah, that's uh, you guys heard it. No script. Uh, so <laughs> thank you, James. We're gonna wrap up here. We got three rapid fire questions for you. I've got a fun fourth at the end. Okay. Okay. The first question is, what is your favorite quote or just like the best piece of advice you've been given? Uh, favorite quote. Man, I have a lot. Um, I'm a I'm a big believer in. People, uh, like like Maya Angelou, I think was, was one of the greatest poets of all time. She said, when people show you who they are, believe them. And I'm a big part, because like, I'm a Gemini, so loyalty to me is like really important. Like If somebody shows you that they're not who you thought they were, believe that. Believe that, and use that as kind of like a precursor to keep it moving. Uh, because otherwise, you know, we have people in our lives who sometimes are meant to be there for a season and we keep them there for a couple of years and we wonder why we have so much uh, unhappiness in our lives. Sometimes you got to let people go to, to, yeah. you know, to, very, to bring that happiness in. Very wise. Uh-huh. <laughs> the next question, if you could have dinner with anyone in the world, dead or alive, who would it be and why? Hmm. You know, I'm a, I, I would say for me, it would probably be, oh man, I would say Dr. King. He was, you know, just, you know, come on, the guy was a phenomenal orator, orator and just, um, you know, I'm big on rights, and civil rights, and uh, treating people with dignity, respect, um, just human rights in general. Um, yeah, so if I could have a, a night with some soul food with Dr. King, that would be awesome. Yeah. All right, lastly, well, he wants to ask, but uh, hobbies, what do you like to do in your free time? 
work on my golf game. It needs a lot of help. So if anybody can help me out, please, <laughs> please reach out, reach out to these guys, and they can get to me. I definitely need a good coach. Um, I read a lot. I love reading. Uh, <clears throat> it's just a way to get away from all the madness of the world, right? Um, a really good book. I just get Im immersed in it, and I'm like in another world. Um, I enjoy running. I don't don't ask me why I enjoy running. I just do. That's another way to, when you're pounding the pavement or whatever, it's just another way to be in another in world where you're kind of for 30, 45 minutes, you're laying everything out on the periphery go, and you're just focused on that that next mile. That to me does a lot to me. And when I'm done running, you feel it, there's a great sense of accomplishment. Uh, you feel better. It's like okay, I can tackle the next few hours here after a really good run. Uh, so running. Reading and golf. working on golf, I love yeah, it. especially golf. I think I'm not going to play this afternoon because I don't want to watch the Bears lose. Quick, quick and <laughs> quick and easy one. Quick and easy one. LeBron or MJ? No comment. <laughs> if that's not a way to end the podcast, I don't know what it is. James, thank you so much for coming on here, man. We really appreciate Absolutely. it. Absolutely, thank you. It was a pleasure. Thanks, Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, of course. <laughs>